0: I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Energy specialist and author Simon Perani joins us in conversation about his new book, Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. That addresses the burning, pun intended, question of the day impending climate catastrophe. Simon's book traces the inexorable increase in oil, gas and coal use since the mid 20th century and shows how consumption growth accelerated since the discovery of global warming in the 1980s. He argues that fuels are mainly consumed through technological systems, which are in turn embedded in social, economic and political systems, and that the transition away from fossil fuels will mean the transformation of all of these. We then turn to the LA Teachers Strike and speak to Arlene Inoue, Secretary of the United Teachers of Los Angeles or UTLA and co-chair of the negotiations team. ...on the state of play in the bargaining process and ask her to lay out how important this strike is for public education, indeed, for the public. UTLA is demanding that LAUSD negotiate a fair agreement that addresses class size, funding for nurses, counselors, and librarians, a halt to further privatization through charterization and teacher pay, or face teachers on the picket lines... After the spectacular Red State teacher strikes of last year, the LAUSD strike has enormous potential in practical and inspirational terms for labor and community as a whole. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Simon Perani with us. He's a senior visiting research fellow at Oxford Institute for Energy Studies and also the author of The Russian Revolution in Retreat and Change in Putin's Russia. But Simon's here today because he has a brand new book. And it's called Burning Up A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption, published by Pluto. And it traces the inexorable increase in oil, gas, and coal use since the mid 20th century. And it shows how consumption growth accelerated since the discovery of global warming. That may seem, that was in the 1980s, and it seems counterintuitive. And we're going to spend some time on that. And the book also, and Simon argues that fuels are mainly consumed through technological systems which are in turn embedded in social, economic, and political systems. So this is meaty stuff. And he also says that the transition away from fossil fuels means the transformation of all of this. So with that in mind, Simon Pirani, welcome to Jacobin Radio.
1: Thanks, Susie.
0: And and let's just get into it. So, okay. It, all right. So there's a lot, but let's begin by talking about the way that you began your book, explaining first the inaction and then the further inability of the world's most powerful governments to agree on any strategy to stop this catastrophic course. And you compare their failure to the way people look at Europe's descent into the barbaric slaughter of World War I, another collective madness. And this, this book, I should just let the listeners know, is incredibly well signposted and organized and you constantly make and remake your points. <laughs> (laughs) And it's very big picture. It addresses the large issues of technological and social systems and the commodification of energy. And then, of course, what needs to be done. But I think a good place, Simon, to start after all of that would be to look at this collective madness and the view that many, by many, that individual righteous behavior, proper recycling, reducing individual consumption of fossil fuels will somehow make the difference. And so maybe you could just start by addressing this issue, that is it or is it not about not driving, not flying, and uh, no longer eating meat? It's
1: not about those things. And the reason why it's not about those things is because, firstly, it is true that in the rich world especially, of course, there is plenty of consumption of fossil fuels and all sorts of other stuff going on, which is clearly not necessary for, in the sense of life and death. And this non-necessary consumption is, is consumption not by a small minority, but by millions of people. So we have to acknowledge that that is the world that has developed, especially since the middle of the 20th century. Consumerism and consumption on a mass scale is a thing. But that doesn't tell the whole story of how fossil fuels are consumed. Firstly there are huge areas of consumption that are outside individuals consumers control entirely so there is energy that which is expended in industrial processes there is energy used by companies there is energy used by the military in absolutely huge quantities and by different parts of government, and when we read in the newspapers that citizens of the UK per head use X amount of fossil fuels the newspapers are attributing to me as a citizen of the UK some of that military use of energy, some of that government use of energy, some of that industrial use of energy, some of the gigantic use of energy in the big data centers that keep the internet going. Now, I've had no say or control in that energy use. And in fact, if we then zero in to the sort of individual consumption that I, as a citizen of a rich world country, may engage in, I don't even have control to a great degree over that. So let's talk about cars. I drive a car mainly to transport my two dear grandsons around and not for much else, but I drive a car. And in London, it's difficult to exist and especially to, if you have a family with children, it's difficult without a car. But as your listeners well know, Susie, there are many cities in the United States where it's simply impossible for a young family with young children to exist without a car. Why have we got to that position? That's developed through history. Those are the sort of things I tried to look at in the book. So it's not a moral issue about reducing consumption. It's an issue, as you said, of changing these technological systems and the social and economic systems in which they are embedded, and... I've also said a lot in the book about the way that the governments internationally have failed to address those issues.
0: Well, before you go there, Simon, because that's exactly where I wanted to pick this up. And I think this is the sort of, you know, really important contribution that you make in this book, because it's not just about these individual behaviors, but you do it. You know, literally, it's an economic history in in certain ways, and you really show – Why we are dependent on fossil fuels, for example, and how this has fueled expansion and production. But at the same time, you know, you show the political missteps or maybe they aren't missteps. They were deliberate steps in the interest of increasing profits at a time when they were down that led to this catastrophic behavior. Maybe you'd like to explain it a little more and also address in that. What about, as you do in your book, about the more than billion people in the world who don't have electricity, you know, right. and who don't contribute so, to this?
1: Looking at the development of those systems, I think the, the most graphic example is the motor car, because you've got a technological development, which we get at the beginning of the 20th century, the invention of the internal combustion engine, and clearly... This magic machine uh, which can burn a little fuel and then can transport a small number of people from A to B so easily was clearly a fantastic thing. There's also a history about how the internal combustion engine elbowed out of the way the early type of electric engines. In fact, it was more efficient at that time, all other things considered. But then on top of that technological development, you get very powerful economic and social developments so you have henry ford you have the production line in Detroit. You have automation. And then you have the tremendous lobbying power of the three big car corporations, Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors, which really dominates American politics in many ways. Right from the 1920s, you have them inventing the whole idea of planned obsolescence, which was invented by the car companies during the Depression in order to push up their sales You have the effect of their lobbying on urban infrastructure and on highways. You have the the incredible statistic that when we go through the Second World War and come out of the other side and we're in the post-war boom, the Marshall Plan, which we've all heard about, America giving aid to post-war Europe, is completely dwarfed in financial terms by the spending on the interstate highway system. Mm. So then we have the development of suburbia in America. So all these things contribute to... American car culture, which is far and away ahead of the other rich countries. That car culture then spreads to some of the European countries, the UK in the first place, and some of the other richer European countries in the period after the war. And then what we see from the 80s is an attempt to spread it further. And then we see this vicious battle fought by those car companies, for example, against the attempts to regulate fuel efficiency and the great battle that they fight against being compelled to make the engines do a certain number of miles per gallon and that they then get around that by selling to American families millions and millions and millions millions of trucks SUVs rather than cars going from the 1990s so that's a whole context and then for the, the uh, family with a couple of kids in an American city, that's the context in which they're living and those are all among the reasons uh, that they drive a car. got to transform these systems, we've got to transform the urban transport system to take that example of course we can get from A to B without having these huge great lumps of metal which are very energy intensive to make, quite apart from being energy-intensive to drive, and we've got to transform our cities to make them very nice places to live in, where people will not want a car, and there are cities in the world which are already like that, some of the, Amsterdam or Barcelona, where very, very few people drive cars, but... It's the system that has to be transformed, and it's not about a moral decision by individual drivers. Now, moving on to the second point, you asked about the situation with fossil fuel consumption, energy consumption in many countries outside the rich world, where there are still millions of people who are not part of that commercial energy system at all in the way that it developed in the rich world here you've got the other side of the coin that uh, development that i mentioned about cars one could equally speak about the development of urban uh, built environments about the development of uh, electricity networks all these things have gone together to make up the very energy intensive type of societies that we live in in the rich world now what we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years with so-called globalization is the measures to spread that to countries outside the rich world. So not only have production facilities been exported to those countries where the labor is cheaper, but also, to a certain extent, these urban systems, these energy-intensive ways of living, have also been... Exported. and so we read in the papers about the emerging middle class and uh, even quite rich classes of people in India and China and so on, much smaller still than in all the rich countries, but certainly there is that type of consumption which is now taking place in those countries. But at the other side of those countries, there are still, first of all, there are a billion people who do not have electricity, and that means effectively they're not part of this commercial energy system at all, and there's also what's an expanding and an even larger group of at least a billion and a half people who have one foot in this commercial energy system and one foot in the non-commercial energy. So probably they will be partly relying on the firewood from the countryside, which people in rural parts of developing countries rely on, but they'll also be buying some kerosene or other types of fuel, which they'll be using on and off, and they may have some intermittent and irregular supply of electricity, and these people are in this halfway position, are very often in these huge cities in countries outside the rich world, which are very often surrounded by vast slums. And, of course, in the 19th century in Europe, providing sewage and municipal services and then later, at the end of the 19th century, electricity to townspeople in Europe, to working people, gradually became to be seen as a government responsibility or a municipal responsibility. And we now see this same dilemma in front of cities in developing countries, but in a completely new way. You've got much larger populations than you had in 19th century Europe, living a much more precarious existence. They're not necessarily working in factory jobs as those 19th century European workers were. They're very often in all sorts of precarious jobs or none. They live in these huge slums and they live in a world where they're acutely aware that electricity is available. And they very often come to see it as a right. And one of the things I learned about while researching the book is the huge struggles that have gone on in South Africa, in Brazil, in many other countries outside the rich world where people... People living in newly urbanized areas are demanding electricity as a right. In some cases, they are stealing it from the electricity suppliers. And this puts governments in a huge dilemma about how to pursue this battle with their own citizens. Of course, they have the neoliberal advisors coming along telling them that the priority is to make people pay for electricity. But those masses of people don't see it like that. They see electricity as being a right, uh, living in a 21st century city, and that's a very reasonable way to look at the world.
0: Okay, well, let me just say this is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm speaking to Simon Peroni. And he's talking about his new book called Burning Up: A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. And we're just going right through it. And Simon, on the back of the book, it says, Coal, Gas, and Oil have been society's main fuels since the Industrial Revolution. And yet, of all the fossil fuels ever consumed, More than half were burned in the last 50 years. Most alarming of all, fossil fuel consumption has grown fastest, in the last three decades since scientists confirmed that it is the main cause of potentially devastating global warming. So that's where I want to go next. There seems to be this disparity between economic growth, which you really clearly lay out and just did again that, you know, the way that the economies of the world has grown is through the use of fossil fuels. But it's slowing down now. And yet the use of fossil fuels is speeding up. So the question is, wouldn't we normally expect this to follow economic growth and the pursuit of profit? So what makes for this acceleration? You go through it in your book. Productivity, automation, the international spread of economic activity. And you point to the 1980s and deregulation and privatization, and neoliberalism supposedly jumpstarting capital accumulation, which of course you show is really about redistribution upward. And I would just say one other thing about that too is that in the, in globalization, you get new entrants into the world economy. And what do they do? They produce cars at least if you think of Japan and Korea, you know, in Germany in the 20th century. But anyway, Simon, so what about this disparity?
1: So I think the disparity that you're referring to where there's a very, very sluggish economy and the total use of fossil fuels is still increasing is really... A pretty new thing, which is in this strange period we're living in uh, following the financial crash of 2008 to 2009. Mm. So if you, the book is a a world history, and you mentioned earlier that it's a huge global overview. Mm. So I looked at the graph of fossil fuel consumption on a world scale, and in fact it does, it takes a blip in the, it takes a couple of blips in the 1970s because of the oil price increases, and then it, It goes upward again, it then accelerates during the 90s, and then you get another blip in 08 and 09, but it very rapidly then goes upward again. Now I think the explanation for that is that while there's been an extremely uh, sluggish recovery or even no recovery from the 08-09 crisis in most of the rich countries, China has continued to expand. And of course, this highlights a phenomenon of the the modern world that we're living in, that all these energy intensive processes, such as the production of steel, the production of cement, have essentially been exported from the rich countries to a large extent, in the first place to China and to other countries outside the rich world. But the growth in Fossil fuel consumption in China during the Chinese boom prior to '80'9 was absolutely dazzling, and that continued through that financial crisis of '809, because, as you know, the, the Chinese economy actually continued to expand. But they're doing in China the, all this energy-intensive stuff which, in previous decades, was more likely to have been done in the rich countries.
0: It's pretty interesting, too, because you just mentioned some of the ways that the globalization has led to the increased use on the part of China and other countries around the world to depend on fossil fuels. In your book, you also talk about how, for example, iron and steel demand has fallen since an earlier period. And I was kind of chuckling as I read that because Trump is trying really hard to pump it back up by building a steel wall. <laughs> you know, and, it's, and, of course, that brings to mind the, the way that you go through the various administrations. And just show that politics really does matter, and the people you know who either push deregulation, relax fuel standards or increase fuel standards does make some difference. but I want you to address The issue of capitalism. Most people assume that it's capitalism itself that is causing climate catastrophe or is that rather fueling its, you know, acceleration. And yet you, Simon, you know, dedicate your book to Pavel Sheremet, who was assassinated in 2016 in Kiev in Ukraine. And of course, you've been a longtime journalism of oil, gas and energy politics in both Russia and Ukraine. And your earlier two books are both about Russia. And that brings up the issue of the part of the world that didn't, you know, participate in capitalism in the 20th century, and yet wanted to outstrip it. And we know that the 10 dirtiest cities on the planet in the 1980s, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, were all in the Soviet bloc. So maybe you could say some words about that.
1: Well, I think the Soviet Union was a non-capitalist society. But I think we can see clearly now from, from probably many different points of view among your listeners that society mirrored capitalism in many ways. The relationships on the shop floor between workers in Soviet factories bore a suspicious resemblance to the hierarchical, unpleasant, sexist, bullying sort of atmosphere in a Western factory. And there was another way that the Soviet Union mirrored capitalism, which was the way that industrial production was developed in a way that was damaging to the natural environment and there was little heed paid as little as in many other capitalist countries at various stages of their development, to the damage done, the pollution on a, on a local scale and so on in the Soviet Union. And indeed, climate science denial, interestingly, while well, I think it, its heart has always been on the right wing of U.S. politics, mm. was also pretty strong in the late uh, Soviet Union, and that's actually fed through to modern-day Russia. I suppose the other point to make in answer to your question is that uh, China, which came out of the Soviet bloc and then took the so-called capitalist road, according to its leaders, very deliberately took a decision to do what I was just describing, to become the sort of workshop of of the world, in other words, the capitalist world, to produce all that steel, to produce all those manufactured goods, to do the heavy lifting for the world capitalist economy. And it has to be said that the Chinese leadership took that decision in the 1990s, knowing full well, as all the other governments did, about about uh, the dangers of climate change.
0: Okay, so now I want to switch because we you know need to get through so- several more important areas and you talk a lot in your book about the international climate conferences, conventions, and talks that try to deal with the reduction of reliance on fossil fuels. How effective are those? Are they talk shops or are they actually able to really address this? What do you think about these kinds of fora?
1: This was one of the hardest things to understand as a historian, how to explain this process where. The science develops in the 1980s. The scientists come to the politicians, in a sense, towards the end of the 1980s with very, very clear information, uh, a very clear understanding of the climate change process, the effect of greenhouse gases, and the relationship between fossil fuel consumption and other types of industrial activity and those greenhouse gas emissions. That science is very clear, and it's acknowledged and accepted by the politicians. They go to Rio, they have the Rio conference, they decide that something has to be done, and then, as you've mentioned, the graph of Global fossil fuel consumption continues to go up and up and up. Now, the many socialists, Susie, that I know you have amongst your listeners, um, and many friends of mine who would see themselves as socialists and enemies of capitalism, will tend to sort of look at it and say, well, what else would you expect? It's a profiteering system. They wouldn't care. Mm. Um, and that never really worked for me, that explanation, because I absolutely, it is a profiteering system, and there's lots of them who don't care. But also, I, I used to think, I used to read about this, and I used to think, well, they've got grandchildren as well. They're not stupid people. They can see what's coming. And what I see in the beginnings of the international climate talks is the, that it comes at the same time as the real onset of neoliberalism. You've already had the anti-regulation politics of uh, President Reagan in the US, that then infects the whole political discourse. You then get the onset of neoliberalism. So I think all the politicians, the bureaucrats in governments throughout the 1990s, they're focused on liberalization, they're focused on privatization, they're focused on all these neoliberal dogmas. And the climate resolutions are passed and they just don't get prioritized. And then you get a massive, the massive sort of hypocrisy of present-day capitalist statehood comes into play Mm. because the amount of subsidies that are going to both to fossil fuel production and to consumption rise consistently while they're trooping to these international climate talks and passing decisions about something has to be done. So the subsidies are pumped into fossil fuels. When it comes to moving away from fossil fuels, the international climate talks constantly reiterate that that's going to be done by market mechanisms. But, of course, that's a complete piece of nonsense because the subsidies undermine those market mechanisms so that the approach that was adopted in Kyoto in 1997 of creating carbon markets and so on sat very well in the the world view of, of the capitalist governments but also was never going to work in terms of Stopping global warming. So I think this really is a crisis of statehood. I think it is a comparison with the, the European governments hurtling towards war in 1914. Mm. I think it's, and I think the Australian school pupils who went on strike in their masses a few weeks ago about climate change, I think they bring an understanding of this issue which is completely lacking in these political circles. They see that urgency. They see that as a direct issue. They cut through the politics, and they're saying something has to be done, and I think we'll get a lot more of that kind of action from that generation, because if you're Eighteen years old today. Uh, you were born in two thousand. Nine of the ten hottest years ever have been in your lifetime. Right, and, and that's I uh, think young people of that youngest generation really understand this in a new way.
0: And the headlines in today's New York Times is ocean temperatures are rising much faster than even the alarmists had predicted. Desperately want to get to the last part of it, and I'll just refer listeners to your book because you do a wonderful job of debunking. You know. Malthusian theories that blame population growth on the problems of the planet. And you're showing how it's a much deeper problem about the methods of industrial expansion and technological and social economic systems. But finally, we're starting now to see a really, you know, especially in the United States with the election of some progressives like Alexandria Cortez and others to the Congress, promoting a program called the Green New Deal. And I just wonder, given your, you know, broad analysis, whether you think that the Green New Deal will address some of the restructuring that's probably necessary in the way that, you know, economics are played out and whether or not this is a possibility to save the planet.
1: I think that, for me, I've always regarded myself as a socialist. And to me, socialism means completely turning upside down that social and economic system in which we live to make it a system which is not about profiting corporations, but it is about living better. And... I, uh, well there are many different versions of the Green New Deal, of course there are some quite right-wing versions which are really just about a big investment program, but there are other we could call them left-wing versions such as the ones that we're now seeing on the left wing of the Democratic Party where the politicians are talking about some sort of war-type mobilization I suppose that that is social democratic politics, that is an attempt to use state investment to pull capitalism out of its latest crisis, I mean, and I suppose I would have the same question mark over that as I would have over social democratic politics generally. I don't think such a mobilization alone will bring about the sort of transformation that I believe uh, socialism implies. Where's the um, hope, Simon? And I don't want to say by saying this that none of these measures will make a difference. Of course, any measure that can start to address a part of the problem would be good. We'd quite like a bit of social democracy here in the UK after 20-odd years of the austerity politics. So um, it's not an either-or. And I'm also not pretending that I think there's some simple point answer. You know, let's sort it all out after the revolution. I don't think that either. I think it's a very, very complicated problem, but I suppose the main thing to me is, first of all, it has to be that complete transformation, and second of all, it has to be the work of it cannot be the work of uh, politicians, however well meaning, uh, teamed up with business. It has to be the work of civil society as a whole, society as a whole.
0: Okay, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much. And I'll tell the listeners you should definitely get this book. There's so much in it that you will be able to use. Simon, thanks for staying up to talk to us from the UK. His new book is Burning Up A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. It's by Simon Peronis, a senior visiting research fellow at the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies. And his previous books are about Russia, The Russian Revolution in Retreat, and Change in Putin's Russia. Thanks so much for being with us today, Simon. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. And so pleased to have Arlene Inouye with us again. She is the Secretary of the United Teachers of Los Angeles UTLA and co-chair of the bargaining team. And she's joining us in the midst of bargaining. And, of course, brand-new Governor Newsom has just released his new budget with more money for education. So we're going to get the lay of the land with where we are. Arlene Inouye, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank
2: you so much, Susie, it is great to be on your show and to talk to your listeners. In relation to our bargaining, we have been bargaining with LAUSD. We have a core bargaining team of 13 members, which includes classroom teachers, special ed teachers, I myself am a speech and language therapist. We have been at the table for 21 months and brought our classroom experience to the bargaining as well as we've had over 50 people cycle in and out who are experts in different areas, such as rock-rope teachers, early education, bilingual education experts, as well as parents and community. So we've had a very healthy, robust team, very dedicated and united around our bargaining proposals and, again, we've been at it for uh, 21 months, an unprecedented wait f- of 56 days before we could even mediate. The district seemed to be prolonging the process. But we're at the point now where it's the last and final opportunity for them to give us right. proposals that are going to meet the needs of the students that we work with, as well as the conditions of working conditions and the salary that we have put forward. And we're hoping that this will now, at the heels of our goings on strike, this will motivate the district to, instead of give us fake numbers and talk about a deficit, really do something about our large class sizes, really do something about the need for a nurse in every school, not just double the nurses in a small percentage of schools to two days instead of one day. No, that's not not enough. We need more counselors. We need more staffing, such as psychologists and other mental health professionals. So this is what's at the table, along with charter school accountability. They have put forward a proposal on co-location that is just about having a task force and making such a big deal. But we've had task force before. And that's not enough. We want real actions in terms of the timeline, in terms of the parent meeting, in terms of having a co-location coordinator who can get the correct information on numbers of students and numbers of rooms and so forth when a charter school wants to co-locate a public education school. So there's a lot of issues we have on the table. We have early ed, bilingual ed, adult education as well and common good demands that we withdrew because the district said they were permissive subjects. But we're going to still fight for them in other ways, and that includes green space on campus and getting rid of the bungalows. It includes the school-to-prison pipeline in terms of the Mm -hmm. random wand searches that the district does, which aren't random and really affects the criminalization of our students or makes them feel very criminalized. And community schools is another proposal that's important to us. The district has passed resolutions supporting community schools, but they have not invested money to back it. So we've asked for $20 million for a pilot of community schools, which is our alternative to the corporate charter schools that have grown in LAUSD. That's a taste of all of the different kinds of issues, Susie, Huge. that we have.
0: There's one story that's coming out in the press, even though I think the L.A. Times is now at least trying to be a little bit more even-handed with kind of two opposing articles every day. But, you know, there was this impression that, well, Buechner finally got the message and went to Sacramento to ask for more money, but then we hear that, no, he didn't go there to ask more money, just gave an update on where things stood. I wanted to just say, because you're the chief you negotiator, know, negotiator at the table. Daunting, I can imagine. But can you just give us a very quick assessment of what it's like to face Let's say, who are the people on the other side? And what kinds of things are you up against? And is it does it fit the mold? And I just wanted to say with that, that disinformation is out there. One would think that if you just read the press or heard the radio or something that people don't know about what's going on and the parents, you know, I don't know what to do with their kids. And yet, this is very just empirical, anecdotal evidence. But when I talk to people with young kids in schools, they all know they're all prepared. They're all supporting the teachers. Their kids come home. and tell the parents, we have to help our teachers. They're putting money out of their own pockets. You know, we have to get more money for Mm -hmm. the schools. So, you know, I think that you've done the work of building support in the community. The media sometimes lags behind on that. So having said, there's a lot there. One, what's it like with the other people? And, you know, how are you getting that community message out?
2: Well, I do want to add, you're right, Susie, we are just amazed at how much support we are receiving from everywhere. And our parents are just so supportive. We have parents setting up cooperatives to watch each other's kids, that they are going to join us on the picket line. They're getting food meals together, bags of food. We have community groups helping us and unions stepping forward. It's just been really amazing. Plus, we have solidarity actions happening across the nation. Red for Ed in California, and yesterday, was we've gotten solidarity messages from everywhere. So there is just such a surge of support. What makes me very encouraged about this is that these issues have been here for a long time, mm-hmm. and it's kind of brought them to the surface, and it's brought it to the consciousness of the American people. And I think that that is a really critical factor because, you know, this is a part of the, the national movement, the strikes across the nation over the past year, and that began in 2012 with Chicago, where it became about our schools, the desegregation issues, the closing of schools in in our poor, black-brown neighborhoods. It became about the inequities in our schools, the lack of funding for basic needs and basic educational resources. So these are issues that are very critical that have been highlighted because of the strikes in the red states and now because LA is so big and such a centerpiece for the charter school movement, Mm. I feel that it's, it's a very good, exciting time to have this out into the open and really change course and change directions in in support for public schools.
0: It really is good to hear your optimism in your vote. And I should let the listeners know too, there's a GoFundMe page for tacos for teachers, you know, during the strike to make sure that the taco trucks show up and feed not just the teachers but the community who are there on the picket lines. There's a lot of efforts to broaden the support and get people out and, and not just students. And this is something that, you know, I don't remember seeing the last time around that there was a strike, that there was this much community support. So that's, you know, and you you've just described some of the efforts to get you know parents and students on the picket line and you've also mentioned some of the things that parents are doing and i think that the the one scaremongering issue and it's, it's a real one is working parents, you know, who often have to leave very early in the morning and yeah. usually have some, you know, arrangement to get their kids to school on time but not too early and sometimes, you know, have trouble getting there after school. And parents are wondering, well, will the school babysit my child? What shall I do? Shall I keep them at home? Do I have, you know, the money to be able to do that? You described the co-op efforts. I think this is really, you know, an important issue in terms of building support to say that this is something the union's concerned about. What, what are some, you mentioned co-ops. How would you advise parents? Should they take their kids to the school, keep them home? Maybe this also begs the question of, should the strike close the schools?
2: Well, that's a very important question that we've heard a lot, and I know the LAUSD has gotten the question mm-hmm. about what to do. We have told our parents that it's their choice, and we totally understand that there are different circumstances that our parents have. Like you said, we have working parents. We have parents on a very limited income. And we understand it's, it's a real hardship. So we respect whatever the parent decides to do, whether it's to keep their child at home or to keep them in school. So we say it's up to the parent to make that decision based on what's best for them. On the contrast, I feel like, Austin Butner has given messages of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. He has created confusion to parents. For example, you know, over the weekend, he put out, you know, kids come to school, and this is a message that's been out there for for months, right? But what he does is, when he was asked on a KCRW interview about what happens to, will kids be, you know, considered truant Mm -hmm. if they don't show up at school, he says he doesn't know <laughs> again create a lot of fear and confusion among parents and we're telling parents that if it happens that kids are penalized or there's some retaliation we will fight that as a union the california law gives discretion to administrators and butner should know that right now he can tell all administrators Do not penalize any students for not being there. So it's a difficult situation for parents, and we are supportive of whatever they can do.
0: You know, you just raised one thing that that I didn't think of, you know, is that one, it would be you hear parents saying, but funding depends on attendance. Does this mean that it'll further deplete what, you know, the schools get if the kids don't show up during a strike? But that's minor compared to what what you just raised, that some parents are fearful that their kids will be declared truant because there's all kinds of consequences that follow from that. So I'm really glad that you've addressed that. But I wanted to turn us now, Arlene know, to the issue of of the strike itself. Given, you know, everything that you've just laid out, in terms of, you know, how big this is, this is the second biggest district in the country, you know, this is a major strike, everybody's paying attention to it. What do you expect to get out of the strike if let's say the budgetary constraints are such that not every demand can be fulfilled? We do see that, you know, some steps have been taken in the new budget proposed by Gavin Newsom. But here I really want you to address, like, what a strike means and what, what it does, you know, for morale and, and what you expect to get out of it.
2: Yes, absolutely. So I know that we have gotten, you know, there are some people who are really pushing hard. Yes, please settle. You know, it's so hard for our our children. It's hard as educators, for, they know that their students are going to be hurt by a strike and striking teachers. But we do understand that this short period of time that a strike would last compared to the last 10, 15 years of cuts, of worsening conditions, of growth of unregulated charter schools, that we feel that this collective action is the only thing that can really change make changes in public education for our country we've seen it happen in other states we've seen the winds in west virginia and oklahoma and arizona Arizona. i mean there's partial winds in some cases but nevertheless it has turned things around so it's very important to make the changes that are needed And for L.A., you know, we have had a 287% growth of unregulated charter schools in the past 10 years. It drains about $600 million every year from L.A. Unified's budget that goes to and follows the student to any unregulated independent charter school. And that accounts for much more than just the loss of the student and What they contribute to attendance, but also the infrastructure, the school that still, you know, that the district still has to upkeep, and so forth. So there's a lot of costs uh, that the district has uh, not really addressed in terms of how to look at charter schools and what they can do, Mm -hmm. and they haven't even collected the money that they are required, that they're required by law or allowed to collect and that's 3% for the co-located campuses. So these are issues that have been around for a long time, and our educators, our teachers, have for a long time been giving more their time. Over the weekend, they're correcting papers, they're doing all kinds of things to help with their classrooms, they're spending their own money. The average is about $1,000 for educators um, they've been doing these things for years, and I think it's come to a point where our members are saying enough is enough,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: that we have, my, my children are suffering in my home because I'm not there with them. I can't be with them. Their health is suffering. And, you know, I guess that's because we're educators. We, this is more, this is a life calling. It's much more than a job. Right. And the teachers this is are the time for educators to really stand up for themselves stand up for our profession because, you know, the, the business model of education has been pushed and the devaluation of educators and public schools has been out there for many years. So this is a real significant time in the history, I think, of our country in relation to public schools and a turning point, I hope, that a strike really demonstrates And as we've been negotiating for 21 months, we can't get the district to move. We can't even give them – they can't even give us um, the facts of the budget, for example. They keep telling us there's a deficit. And we say, show us in the numbers, in your own financial documents, point to where that deficit is in the last five years, and they can't answer because it shows – growing reserve
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: when you have more money coming in and less expenses that is not a deficit yet they keep crying broke on purpose in order to defund our schools in order for our superintendent who was brought in by the california charter school association who funded his campaign through our school board charter school majority He's pushing for a portfolio district model that we've seen in other cities like New Orleans, New Jersey, Indianapolis, and other places Mm
0: -hmm. that
2: is about competition. It's about using test scores to rank schools, close schools, give them over to privately managed corporations. We have to stop this in the tracks, and Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing here, too, is addressing the privatization, and saying, no, instead, the district needs to invest in community schools, it needs to invest in our public schools, and we will not let them get away with their plans to give away our schools.
0: We're almost out of time, but I want to take a tiny few minutes more just to ask you this final question, because you've brought up so many important points, Arlene, and that one is that the red state strikes. And the Chicago teachers' strike seemed to change the conversation and that, you know, it showed the vast amount of public support to secure more funding for education. I actually went to bed last night and had this weird dream, <laughs> and the dream was that Newsom just announced today that he was going to let all nonviolent offenders out of jail and shift the money from prisons to schools and that, you know, this was going to be this one of these wonderful Pollyanna dreams that I had. But it seems to me that people fighting for such a thing could actually, you know, make that happen. And just the final question about that is that the efforts that the UTLA has made to prepare for this strike and build support in the community with the parents and students is actually inspiring in the way that the Red State strikes were inspiring. And I just, you know, wanted you to finally address this issue of how these strikes put pressure on the state, but they also give a boost to all public sector workers who are not not left out of this strike and to other workers as well that this actually could you know change the way life is absolutely thank you for bringing that up
2: one thing i want to just mention is it's changing the lives of our members it's you know our members are able to Feel validated, and they will tell you all of the issues that they've been facing in, their, in the real classroom, and they are fired up and excited in a way that we haven't seen before. And I think that not only for the education community and the education movement, the labor movement, it's so critical that the labor movement is inspired and joins us uh, in our strike as well as all the different actions that are happening labor actions across the nation. So, for example, we have the AFL-CIO, the L.A. County Federation of Labor. We have the unions, 300 of the labor unions in L.A. supporting us, have written, you know, letters of support and so forth. We have unions from across the nation, education unions in particular, who have written letters of support and are taking actions in their own city. We need a resurgence of what the labor movement is about. We need to be active and fighting back against the corporate agenda, against the obscene income inequality and the gaps that we have had in this nation in the past 10, 20 years. This is a powerful time for our country as we are seeing more and more people step up and Become the leaders that they've hoped to have but hadn't seen in Congress, for example. So, all the way around, this is a powerful moment, and as we anticipate the Martin Luther King weekend, we'll be on strike, probably. I don't know for sure. Of course, we don't, you know, have any of that certainty, but it's at around the same time where Martin Luther King stood up and went on strike for the sanitation workers, and Well, he wanted to go on strike, but he couldn't join them because he was killed that weekend. And we think about the connections between labor and ordinary people, workers having a decent wage, decent salary and working conditions, and the need for that, and public education, which is the foundation of our democracy, that every child should have a quality education, especially the most vulnerable and neediest of our kids. So... This is a time of hope. This is a time to know that we can transform this country as we come together with our individual power, Mm -hmm. as individual citizens of this country, as members of unions, as members of school communities.
0: All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. That was so elegant, Arlene, and we're really fortunate to have you today. You're the co-chair of the negotiation team. We've really got somebody speaking for us and leading as the uh, UTLA is in this fight to, let's say, fight for a better world here and I want to thank you so much and wish you luck in negotiations and then I guess we'll all see you on the picket lines. <laughs> I've been speaking That's with That's right. Yes. And you can look up almost anywhere. Go to your local school. There's a lot of different places where you will find that picket line. Arlene Inway, secretary of UTLA United Teachers of Los Angeles, co-chair of the Negotiation team. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule for this message of hope and information. I'm Jacobin Radio.
2: Thank you so much. Thank Susie. you. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine and special thanks to Robert Brenner and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.